Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. Public organizations often have trouble implementing the policies and programs that will benefit the state and its constituents, and the public sector in India is no exception. The perception of the state's capacity to implement policy is often called into question. So how can civil servants in India overcome the barriers they face to policy implementation? Today on CID's Speaker Series podcast, Salima Samji, Director of the Building State Capability Program at CID, interviews Yamini Ayar of the Center for Policy Research, who provides first-hand details on culture within the public sector in India. Salima and Yamini further examine India's state capabilities and discuss remedies that could improve decision-making processes within the government. Yamini Ayar is the President and Chief Executive of CPR, the Center for Policy Research, one of India's leading public policy think tanks. Her research interests are in the field of social policy and development. In 2008, Yamini founded the Accountability Initiative at CPR. Under her leadership, the Accountability Initiative has produced significant research in the areas of governance, state capacity, and social policy. Welcome, Yamini, to CID and the Building State Capability Program. You're the president and CEO of the Center for Policy Research that's based in Delhi. Can you tell us a little bit about what your organization does? Thank you, Salima. It's a real pleasure to be here. The Center for Policy Research is a leading think tank in Delhi. We are one of India's only multidisciplinary think tanks. We work across a range of issues, cutting across many areas of domestic policy, from urbanization, public service delivery, law, governance, climate change, energy, as well as on international relations and security. So we work on a fairly wide range of issues that affect India and policymaking in India today. The other aspect of our work that makes us quite unique is that we work not just with the sort of broader framing questions that policymakers are concerned with, but also at the micro level, at the grassroots level, trying to understand how policies get implemented on the ground. So we have a range of initiatives that work at the grassroots and offer to the policymaking table deep insights into what the grassroots and actual implementation of policy looks like, which we hope ultimately inform the dynamic of policymaking in India. Great, thank you. So in today's podcast, I was wanting to ask you some questions about the challenges in building state capability in India, mostly this idea that you've been talking about, rules versus responsiveness. There's a general sense, not just in India, I think this is more of a worldwide thing, where you think the frontline workers or just general civil servants, they're lazy, they don't really do anything, they're apathetic. In the work that you've done, what have you found to be true? Absolutely. I think every time you talk to policymakers in India about the nature of the state and about what now is, I think, a fairly well-accepted fact that state capacity in India is weak, you'll inevitably hear them talk about the implementation failure and the implementation problem that India faces. The front line is unruly, it's undisciplined, it's corrupt. And to be honest, this is not entirely untrue. There's enough empirical evidence out there to tell us that teachers don't show up, doctors don't show up. When they do, they barely work. There's also a lot of very important and insightful literature that talks about the cutting edge, the relationship between states and society at the cutting edge, the way in which bureaucrats behave with citizens, and the way in which the bureaucracy or the government, more importantly, is a source of power. And the reason why people want to come into the government is to access this power. And therefore, the dispensation of power often functions in a way that can be quite disempowering for citizens. So we know of the state as this fairly large, corrupt, 
powerful entity that leaves the citizen very disempowered. Yet in our work, as we went around talking to frontline bureaucrats, one narrative that we heard consistently is of this very unruly, indisciplined, corrupt set of actors describing their own role within the bureaucratic hierarchy as one of being no more than powerless cogs in the wheel. It really felt like there is something quite strange going on here because these very same people, when you ask them the question of why they want to be part of the government service. They conform to everything that we know about the government. Access to state power is the primary source of social mobility. It's important to access power, to dispense patronage and power. Yet when they talked about themselves, they described themselves as powerless. They call themselves post officers and not post (laughs) officers in the efficient sense of a strong, capable state that will take a letter and ensure that it reaches where it should. But post officers in that they were just moving paper up and down with very little to say for themselves. They would very often say, if you ask them, have you ever offered suggestions? Officers would regularly shrug their shoulders and say, what suggestions can I give? I'm just a government officer. So it was really interesting to us that this set of actors who are known to be powerful and in ways that are deeply disempowering to citizens that they are meant to be serving, themselves, their lived experience of being in the bureaucracy is one of powerlessness and has legitimized a narrative where they describe themselves as no more than post officers. In fact, uh, in our work, we've described this as the post office paradox, uh, (laughs) which I think in many ways really explains what the front line in India looks like. So that's really interesting. A post office generally, when you think about a post office, you think of an extremely efficient system, right? You send a letter, it actually gets delivered, and this could be true worldwide and sometimes actually comes back to you if you had the wrong address. Is that the kind of post office we're talking about? Actually, yes and no. Okay. (laughs) It really depends on how you think about what a bureaucracy is and what a bureaucracy is supposed to do. Let me put it this way. If the function of the front line is literally to ensure that rules and orders are followed, then an efficient post office model may not be such a bad thing. But In the current context of the 21st century, when bureaucracies all over the world, in fact, the entire idea of the developmental state is not one of just implementing technocratic rules and implementing technocratic ideas. It is one of dealing with much harder problems. Take the instance of education. We know now that delivering education is not just a matter of building a school and hiring a teacher. Take the instance of sanitation. We know now that addressing the problem of sanitation and therefore improving public health more broadly is not a matter just of building toilets. It is a matter of, in the context of education, getting inside the very complex function of the classroom, the transactions between the teacher and students. In the context of sanitation, it is about literally engaging with citizens, trying to push what the sanitation experts now call behavior change, building demand from the bottom up. So at some level, these frontline bureaucrats are expected to do a lot more than move paper. They are expected to, in fact, really embed themselves in the context in which they work, deliberate, engage, participate, draw citizens into the goals that they have, and then use those to actually deliver on outcomes. So if you're talking about a bureaucracy that has to push the envelope towards outcomes, then simply moving paper is simply not it. And if you think about it in the Indian context, we have since about 2005 really moved towards trying to build a rights-based welfare state. The idea of the welfare state in India 
is not one of the state dispensing patronage, but one of the state really empowering citizens to demand their rights and make claims on the state. So we're thinking of a very, very broad sense and in many ways a very powerful sense of what a welfare state could look like. Yet we expect that the bureaucrat that is expected to deliver on these rights would intuitively understand the difference between a welfare state that is patronage-based versus a welfare state that is rights-based. And actually, these are two very different things. So for instance, when India passed the right to education, the standard education program, a scheme called the Sarva Shiksha Abhyan, was to be used as the implementing vehicle to use government parlance to deliver on the right to education. So when we went around talking to education officers, we asked them, so we've moved from a scheme to a right. What in your view does that mean? The responses we got were, well, it's a right, which means that we can go to citizens and tell them, if you don't send your child to school, you're going to go to jail because laws get you to jail. (laughs) And the other response we got was, we have to now focus on enrollment. We have to focus on improving attendance. And the reason that they were talking about these things is because in their framing of this post office narrative, they really very much thought about themselves and their roles as that of just moving paper, responding to order. When we tracked the days in the lives of frontline officers. We spent in very different administrative settings. It's important for an international audience to know that India is a large country and our country is divided into states and states operate at very different levels of performance. Whatever measure you might take of it, whether it's GDP or Human Development Index, some states have done relatively better than others. And therefore, you could argue that some administrations are relatively stronger than others. We conducted these interviews and we did these time-use studies across a variety of these administrative settings to try and see whether it would be different in stronger administrations versus weaker administrative settings. But we found that the everyday lives of our bureaucrats are quite similar. At the risk of some slight exaggeration, the everyday life is like this. You come to work, your phone rings, someone barks an order at you, and that someone is usually your boss who sits at the district level, which is a higher level of the administration, and you spend the rest of your day chasing whatever is asked of you in the order that you receive. For the time that we were chasing block education officers, we found, for instance, they were busy with filling up some paperwork regarding scholarships. They were busy with filling up some paperwork regarding examinations. They were busy with filling up paperwork regarding the distribution of textbooks, uniforms, and various other aspects of their work. You could argue that this seems all very sensible, but if you look at when this was happening, this was happening at the time of the budget cycle when schools are expected to make a local level plan, which ultimately feeds into the final budget allocation for the year. Not one of the officers that we were following had the time as they were responding to their daily orders to really focus on the job that they were expected to focus on. In fact, ironically, very often when parents would come in or headmasters or teachers would come into their offices to express their grievances and talk about themselves, they were always told to please sit on the side because I'm very busy filling up the paperwork. In that kind of context then, if the frame of your everyday life is around rules and orders that you're following and the post office behavior that you have to incorporate, Your understanding of performance is also very much based on that. So performance for our officers is not at all about public purpose and public service delivery goals. Performance is about your ability to move paper and respond to the order that has been asked of you. And mind you, this is a very deeply hierarchical setting as all Weberian bureaucracies are. And in that hierarchy, it's not that your boss is calling to you to ask you, if you have time, would you please do this? They are saying, I need this and I need this now. Actually, I needed it as of yesterday. 
when they are barking orders at you because somebody else is doing the same thing with them. And at no point is the feedback loop closed. So you never really know whether the information you have circulated from the bottom to the top is being used for something, why, good, bad, ugly. So your definition of performance is, as some of the interviews uh, we had said, as long as I'm moving paper, as long as I'm following orders, as long as I'm moving data up and down, my job is done. In that context, then, when it comes to actually dealing with service delivery goals, you find officers unable to really be bothered by it because, after all, they're doing the job that they're being asked for. And when it comes back to what I was saying earlier, how do you think about the sort of larger goal of service delivery in the 21st century? How do you think about learning outcomes? Do you think about sanitation outcomes? It really affects how these officers view the problems and challenges they face in their everyday work lives. So in Bihar, we did, and we're doing a similar set of interviews in Delhi as well, we did a series of interviews with teachers and frontline education administrators, talking to them about how and why they view the learning challenge that India faces. It's now a well-established truth that nearly 50% of students in Standard 5 in India can barely read a Standard 2 text. And across the system, from the top to the bottom, everybody's admitting this and everybody's now struggling with how you resolve the learning challenge in India. A lot of the people we spoke to, in fact, almost everyone, spoke about the challenge of learning from the perspective of policy decisions, from the perspective of administrative hurdles, from the perspective of the relationship that parents have with schooling and learning. Not one of the interviews that we had of teachers, cluster resource officers, who are people who have been hired to provide pedagogical support to teachers, education administrators, ever really focused on classroom transactions. Nobody really talked about the professional act of teaching, the curriculum, the syllabus, the relationship that teachers forge with children. It was all about all these external aspects. And when you push them a little harder on what they could do as educators, what they could do as teachers to address the learning problem, they would say, and I'll say this in Hindi, agar sarkar chahti hai, to bahut kuch kar sakti hai. Which translates into if the government wants, they can do a lot. Now, I paid very little attention to this, but my research associate who was a little more fresh in these conversations and therefore came at it with a fresh mind, unlike my jaded one, poked me and said, why are you letting this one go? It makes no sense. After all, aren't these people the sarkar? Aren't these people the government? And to me, that really actually holds the key to the challenge of state capability. That when the account of those who are in the system, when the professional identity of those who are inside of government is one that is shaped by a whole host of factors other than the actual delivery of service. When they see the government as something that can do a lot but can do a lot outside of them, then you have a very, very serious problem. A problem that can't be solved by disciplining this unruly workforce. A problem that can't be solved by sticking a biometric, as many in India like to do, to monitor attendance. A problem that can't be <laughs> solved by bringing in incentives and pay for performance, as all economists are going to tell you. Just change the incentive structure, change the contract. It's not going to work because the actors are embedded in an ecosystem that thinks about itself in a particular way, that's pushed to think about itself in a particular way. And until you don't challenge those underlying norms and cultures and the context within which these identities are shaped, I don't think state capabilities are going to be built up. That's fascinating. 
in PDIA, we have what we call typology of problems because, you know, PDIA is a tool that we use to solve complex problems and not easy ones. And we have one to be able to decide, you know, how is your problem a complex one or not? And we use logistics. And one of our examples for logistics is actually a post office. So this is really fascinating, which doesn't need PDIA. And then there are these other tasks that we call implementation intensive, which are problems that really do need other tools because you need to be responsive, because you need to be able to be flexible. You need to understand your context. A lot of things are changing and moving. There's a lot of interactions that you have. It's not the simple linear, I send you paper, you send it out. Very clear rules to follow. Data, you know, I send you a form, you fill data back. It's not one of those kinds of problems. And it strikes me that a lot of these frontline workers are in the space of implementation intensive problems and yet they're being treated as a norm we generally find this is that even though it's a complex problem people's solution is one for a logistics type of a problem so how do you turn this around like how do you change this and move from a more this rulesy to use your framing of this talk rulesy base to a more responsive like how do we make the frontline worker be more responsive to do their job as opposed to be a paper pusher. I remember you said in one of the things that I had read how the teacher feels like their job is first to fill out data and do forms and teaching is a secondary. How do we change that paradigm? I think the first step is really to change the paradigm in how we think about state capacity more broadly or administrative reforms more broadly. Certainly in India, there is a tendency to think of this as a problem that can be solved at some level with more bureaucracies. I uh, draw a lot on uh, the framing of political scientist Akshay Mangala, who describes two different types of bureaucratic norms, deliberative norms and legalistic norms. And I think the names themselves are self-explanatory. But in a sense, legalistic norms are norms that, you know, are pursued rules, procedures, hierarchy and define performance in that context and a deliberative bureaucracy is one that focuses much more on problem solving and engagement and therefore public service delivery goals automatically become the core priority. So I think for India, I see the bulk of India's bureaucracy, although Akshay's work itself sort of tells you that you do see some state variation in terms of bureaucratic norms. But more broadly, India is very much embedded in a legalistic way of approaching its bureaucracy. And when bureaucracy who are schooled in legalism are expected to respond to the challenge of, of administrative reforms, the natural vocabulary that comes to them and the framing that comes to them is that of legalese. I will also say that we have had a very powerful movement and our rights-based welfare uh, effort was embedded in that movement to try and push harder on the notion of accountability between citizens and states, creating more spaces for citizens to place accountability claims on the state. Very, very powerful and one that I very strongly believe in. But one of the limitations of that approach, or maybe a way to think about it is the challenges of that approach, is that it kind of adopts that legalese and at some level further entrenches that legalese. By which I mean that in order to hold the state accountable, it has to very clearly define and articulate specifically to a degree of minute clarity exactly what it is that the state is supposed to do. So to hold the state accountable, every aspect of the state's functioning has to be documented, articulated, identified, and then made transparent so citizens can draw on it to ask questions of the state. In a sense, without intending to, has served the purpose of 
framing accountability in the context of government documents, rules and procedures or as, uh, you know, or the government file, so to speak. When the file is transparent, as the file is open, then citizens are empowered to make accountability claims. And for all practical purposes, that is the way in which we view citizens engaged with the government and that is the way in which government responds. So it is perhaps the most important instrument for accountability. Yet from a larger perspective of how we think about the challenge of state capability, it does restrict our thinking because we're not asking ourselves the question of the norms and functioning and cultures of bureaucracy and how those can be shifted. So I think firstly, from the perspective of the knowledge generation and idea space, we need to be thinking of the question of administrative reform and state capacity differently. I also think we need to be tackling much more seriously the issue of trust within the government. Ultimately, state capability will truly be built and frontline officers will truly be empowered when we are willing to let go and actually move towards the promise of deeper decentralization, which constitutionally in India we certainly have, but for all practical purposes, this is a phenomenally centralized state. Again, there is one aspect to it, which is the institutional design story. So how do you allocate funds and functions at levels that make appropriate sense and where functions can be carried out effectively. But there is also a norm story of trust, because one of the reasons why decentralization has been resisted is because the top line does not trust the bottom line. And if you are willing to let that go and say, let us be comfortable with a little bit more inefficiency and corruption on the ground, which is a narrative that the top always has, to in the longer term achieve greater autonomy and a new way of building state capability, then I think we'll be moving in an interesting direction. So I think these two things, moving the ideas and really pushing much harder on a more decentralized state have the potential of coming together to thinking about state capability in a different way and PDIA as a tool to enable that and perhaps act as that bridge between the fear of decentralization leading to an inefficient corrupt local state versus perhaps a more innovative local state could be an interesting way in how we think about training bureaucrats and how we think about recruitment and you know all the sort of nuts and bolts legalistic stuff so to speak uh, that can help us build a strong state from the bottom up. Great. Thank you very much. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.